or I sorry clubs. That's a word I used to have growing up where we did children's ministry and they were called clubs. What do we we called them classes? Sorry, that's I heard someone. Yep, that that's what we're going for. Classes. Uh, man, Robbie, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, just in tears. Uh, and uh, I have the privilege of being in community with, group with Robbie and uh, others and just watching how the Lord is continuing his work that he began. Um, and it is truly a joy to watch God at work in Robbie's life um, as he is in all of ours. And uh, to, be a, to be a part of that, to be um, in the body and fellowship with him and with others. If you would, turn to First Peter we're going to be in a uh, new series, a new book, First Peter. We'll be in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And if, uh, as well, if you have your notebook uh, that we're handing out, um, go ahead and pull that out. And as we turn to this book, I think it would help us and serve us to be acquainted with the author. We pick up on this from the outset. It is the book, right? That's letter of Peter, First Peter. And Peter, out of all the disciples, probably has the most highlights and some of, excluding Judas, the worst lowlights, if you remember the stories. Peter was a fisherman chosen by Jesus during the beginning of his ministry, called by Jesus to become a fisher of man. And as time goes on in his discipleship with Jesus, he becomes one of the inner three of Jesus' disciples. Jesus draws him in and mentors him and disciples him. One of the highlights for Peter in the Gospels is when he confesses that Jesus is the Christ as Caesarea Philippi. It's a major moment in the Gospels. And Jesus' response is incredible. Jesus tells Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The Father has revealed it to you. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. A man who was named as Simon becomes Peter. Jesus gives him a new name, which a new identity. He's to be a uh, leader in the early church, and so he's to be a pillar but as is often the case with Peter, very quickly he sticks his foot in his mouth. Only a few verses later, Peter decides to rebuke Jesus. Just a caveat, that's probably a bad idea in the first place. If you're trying to rebuke Jesus, he tries. And Jesus, um, yeah, and Jesus rebukes him. This is what Jesus' response says. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And talk about having that memorialized. Get behind me, Satan. You can imagine his buddies later on in life being like, you remember that one time Jesus called you Satan? And Peter's like, oh no, yes, don't remind me. Talk about a low light. And then we are all familiar with Peter's denial of Jesus. Jesus is being tried and a servant comes up to him and he denies his connection, his relationship. The man, Peter, denies Jesus himself. Yet, after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus sits down with Peter in a seaside conversation in John 21. It reminds him of his call to feed the sheep of God. So Jesus pursues 
Peter restores him despite his failures and commissions him again as an apostle to represent Jesus and to feed the sheep. And as we roll into Acts, we see that his identity in Jesus and the commands of Jesus are empowered by the Spirit. Thousands come to faith, if you remember, in the beginning of Acts, during Peter's preaching. He becomes a pillar of the church. And I love what the priests have to say about Peter, and John's included here in Acts 4.13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So a fisherman, a common man, is given a new name, a new identity, filled with the spirit and the word, becomes a powerhouse for the gospel. And he would later suffer for it. He was persecuted by the religious leaders, and according to church history, he was crucified. And he was crucified, in fact, upside down, we believe, because he didn't want to die the same way as Savior. He felt like he couldn't do that. He was unworthy. A fisherman given a new name, new identity. And Peter didn't fit in to the world, and he's helping us understand that so that we might understand in 1 Peter our identity in Christ, what that means for life, our suffering in this world. See, 1 Peter is about him doing what God has commanded him to do and feeds us as God's sheep. And oh, do we need this. The world around us is clamoring to answer the question, who am I and why am I here? And they push us to look inside ourselves to find the answer. We do not need something from within, but without. We need God's word on who we are. So this is why we turn to 1 Peter, God's very word. Read verses one and two with me. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatius, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. The main point today is you will not fit into this world because you have an identity in the Trinity. You will not fit into this world because you have an identity in the Trinity. Point number one, our identity elect exiles. So we see this at the beginning. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatius, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So after the from portion, who's it from? It's from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He moves to the to piece of the letter. Who is this to? Right, he's writing to believers in these various areas, Pontus, Galatius, Cappadocia, and Asia. What would be considered modern day Turkey? The believers are dispersed in this region. There are scholars that think the reference to exile and dispersion means he's talking to Jewish Christians who are literally exiled or kicked out of Israel in those area. However, most scholars, and I would agree, say that he's mainly speaking to Gentiles, Gentile Christians, and using Old Testament language to understand their struggles and their identity. 
And I would agree with that. Either way, Peter's point is theological. He helps them, and by extension us, understand the Christian's identity. We are elect exiles. And these two categories are actually going to frame the whole book, both who we are, what God has done for us and bringing us into our identity in God, and our situation on this earth. And as we will see throughout the letter, Paul, or Peter is writing to suffering Christians, Christians that are perplexed and misunderstood and being attacked verbally. They are different than those who are around them, and they are being persecuted for it. In the middle of this, surely there is a temptation to fit in. So Peter writes them a letter to encourage them and exhort them to holiness. And what does he begin with? Their identity in the Trinity. Peter begins his letter with what I would consider a major mic drop moment. And at first glance, it's kind of confusing. It seems like a contradiction of terms or an oxymoron. Elect exiles. You know, wait, what, Peter? I thought I was saved. I'm in exile? What's going on? Exile would have recalled for the reader the exiles of the Old Testament, right? Where the curses of the covenant would have meant that if they broke relationship with God, if they rebelled against God, they were to be dispersed under the judgment of God. So the fact that Peter calls them exiles is at first glance kind of startling. Is God displeased with them? Is this judgment? But those questions are are quickly corrected by the first half. They are elect. This is not the judgment of God, but rather the favor of God. For those who hope in Jesus, Jesus, their home is not here. We see this idea in Hebrews 13, where it writes, These, Old Testament saints, all died in faith, not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. They are elect or chosen by God. And the irony is that their being chosen by God is the precise reason they're exiles in this world. Because our home is in heaven, we are exiles on this earth. God's love exiles. His favor displaces us. His hand upon us brings us out. We have a new identity. Even as we are among those who do not, we are different. Why? Because we are elect. To go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light means that you are exiled from the kingdom of darkness. To be saved is to be exiled. To be saved is to be both brought in by God, elect and chosen, and kicked out by the world. To be saved is to be known and loved by God, and yet to be hated by the world. To be saved is to be in right relationship with God and his church, and yet to be ostracized by the world. Peter is using the term exile for a reason. He's helping us visualize our spiritual status in the world. I mean, imagine that illustration. Think about being in exile as a Jew, for instance, in the the nation of Babylon. You've grown up in Israel. You had homes and fields. You had a culture, a language. 
You look a certain way, dress a certain way, talk a certain way, live a certain way. Your religion is totally different than the surrounding nations. And then you are brought to Babylon. All the things that make you you are now considered foreign, misunderstood, weird, maybe even illegal, threatening. The Babylonian way of life is totally different. Now all the ways you look and talk, the ways you dress, what you eat in accordance with the law and the way you live is different than the people that are all around you. Even your vibe is different to use what the cool kids say. Maybe we're past that. We are strangers and exiles. God serves us through Peter by setting our expectation this side of heaven. He sets our expectations. Our expectations must be accurate. And don't you feel this sometimes? Doesn't this give words to the realities that you've already experienced, right? Where you work and play and maybe even in your home or with your extended family, you are different than those who are unbelievers. We feel this deeply when family gets together and it's awkward in conversation because an unbelieving relative can't go any deeper than the surface. And so you talk about spiritual things and it's crickets. Or when your unbelieving mother misunderstands everything you do and views your love for and commitment to the church as weird and she doesn't understand it. Why don't you idolize me and love me and forget the church? When you're at work and the filthiness of the talk around you leaves you with nothing to say. Because you can't as a Christian. You can't join in the conversation. So it's awkward. Students, when you're at school and your friends are obsessing and idolizing over their appearances, relationships, their Hollywood crush, and you just don't connect with them. Maybe even they mock and bully you. You slander you. So we are exiles. God ordains our suffering for our good. And so Peter writes in chapter four, verses 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So we must set our expectations accordingly so that we are not surprised by these trials. Also, we must not try to fit in. Maybe you just heard all the things I just said and, you, and you're like, you know what? I don't actually feel that different. Could it be that you have neglected your identity in God and have caved to the world? Could it be? I think it's worth asking the question. Thinking back to the Babylonian exiles, can't you imagine the tremendous pressure to become like the Babylonians. You know, maybe if I'm just stopped doing the things that I've been doing, I won't be as weird. You know, the way I eat is weird. So if I just eat different, then we'll be good. God probably won't care. Maybe I'll start acting like them, living it up a little. Surely no harm will come of it. I'll still be a Jew, right? The lies creep in and the slow fade begins and no one, until no one can tell the difference. Don't we feel that deceptive pull at times? 
to forget our, our identity, to deny our identity. So we start crude joking at work, inappropriate, using inappropriate words used for women, cursing, inappropriate clothing, ethics at work. How easy it is to have identity amnesia, forget who we are in Christ, forget our status as exiles. And so we compromise. We add a crude joke in hopes that it will help us fit in. We give in to our boss and fudge on the report, which is a lie. We start to believe the lie that hobbies and the good life of Southern charm is really gonna satisfy our souls. So we neglect church, we ne neglect meaningful relationship and depth. And sure enough, we look around and we're no different than the world. This call to live out our identity is weaved throughout 1 Peter. In chapter two, verses 11, he writes, beloved, I urge you, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We are elect exiles. And also we're approaching another political season. Cue the rolling of the eyes and the groans. And part of the, the burden to preach First Peter is because First Peter grounds us in the gospel. It grounds us in who our identity is in Christ and how we are to live in a world where we will be misunderstood. He teaches us how to be citizens of heaven while we are still on this earth. Friends, your identity is not Republican or Democrat. It is elect, chosen by God, a kingdom citizen. And no, I'll make the caveat. Peter's not saying, right, check out of the world, forget everything. He's teaching us how to live in the world. Peter's going to address what it means to be an elect exile under political leaders later in the letter. So friends, let this be the gauge for your involvement in political conversations this next season. Do people see you as more passionate about politics or Jesus? Do people see you as more passionate about politics or Jesus? Our passions reveal what we love, where we are seeking our identity, and what our hopes are. What you feel strongly about, underneath that is something you greatly value. So let, and let that be the gauge for our whole lives, right? What would people say we are most passionate about? Have your passions been so drawn to the things of this life, this home, that you have begun to think of this as your forever home rather than heaven? So homework for the week. Ask someone close to you what they think you are most passionate about. Ask someone that you're close to what they think you are most passionate about. And watch, is the answer Jesus? See, we don't fit into the world because God has given us a new identity. And this new identity has actually nothing to do with us. It is accomplished, brought about by God. The world looks for identity within, within ourselves, how we feel, go on a journey of discovery, 
try to fill your way into who you are. Our identity comes from without ourselves, outside of ourselves. He doesn't leave, God does not leave us to our own devices. He himself enters the fray and gives us this identity. Our identity is not because anything we have done, but only because of what God has done. So point number two, our identity is brought about by the Trinity. Our identity is brought about by the Trinity. Look at the next phrase. According to the foreknowledge of God. So this phrase and the following two that we'll look at go back to modify the title elect exiles. So our election and in some sense our exile is in line with because of connected to the father's foreknowledge. What does it mean to be foreknown? Does it mean that God simply peeks into the future and is aware of all that is to come? Yes, it does mean that he is aware of all that will happen for he knows all things. But the meaning of this word is so much richer than simply knowledge about. We see this in verse 20. So look at 1 Peter 1 verse 20. He, meaning Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. He, Christ, was foreknown. Jesus himself was foreknown. We are foreknown in Christ. And this implies both affection and the plan of the Father for Jesus to be sent. We see that in the second half of the verse. Sam Storms, a theologian, helpfully summarizes his foreknowledge as this. Thus to foreknow is to forelove. It is to be committedly, intimately loved and chosen by God from eternity past. The Father elected us, chose us in his covenantal love for us. Like a father who adopts in love according to love because of love, we have been chosen in love. Think of parents, and some of you have experienced this. You're looking at cases of kids in an orphanage, and you choose, some of you have chosen multiples, and you set your love on them, even before you have a relationship with them, even before you know them. You begin to pray for them, and eventually you go and get them. It's not because of anything they've done, but because you chose them in love. Well, that's just a foretaste. Look at how Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 describes this reality. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Undeserved, unreserved, choosing love. The Father not only had our picture, he ordained and has established every detail of our life, knows all things. And in spite of our rebellion 
including after we become a Christian, he chose to set his love on us and bring about our salvation. Friends, we find comfort in being known by friends, family, fellow members of Risen Hope Church. And this is right. We find a sense of relational comfort and rest in being known and loved, especially if there's history with the person. Let the magnitude of God's loving, choosing knowledge of you from eternity past sink in. Let it sink in. We have a past with God that has nothing to do with us. He foreknew us before time began. And so when you are misunderstood at work, when you don't fit in, remember that you have been known and loved by God. When your family feels more like foreigners, Remember that you have a home. You have been loved from eternity past. And so even as you are temporarily a sojourner, an exile, an outcast in this world, you have been eternally loved, known, and chosen by God. Nothing stops his salvation, including your suffering, for that even comes through his wise, sovereign hand. And so this love is committed. It brings about all the rest of salvation to fruition. Look at the next modifying phrase. In the sanctification of the Spirit. In the sanctification of the Spirit. So we move from realities of eternity past to application by the Spirit in the present. The Spirit sanctifies those who are elect and foreknown. What has been planned by the past, in the past by the Father is applied in time by the Spirit. And the scripture has two senses of the word sanctification. One being the work of the spirit to consecrate us or set us apart for God. So this is kind of definitive moment where God acts to do this. And the other is the ongoing work of sanctification where we are made to look more like Christ. So God gives us an identity and then makes us more like that. We see both senses in Hebrews 10, 10 and 14. It should be up on the screen. We have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So we are set apart or devoted to God and we are living more devoted to God by the spirit as we grow in Christ's likeness. I believe Peter has the first one in mind. This definitive sanctification is what we would say. The Father's election and foreknowledge has led to our being set apart for God by God, by the Spirit. The Father plans and the Spirit applies. The theologian Sinclair Ferguson, writing on this use of that word for the sanctification, helps us when he writes, this is what sanctification means. God has put his reserve sign on something. Temples, temple vessels, for example, in the Old Testament is what he's meaning, or on someone who thereby becomes a saint, a person reserved for the Lord. He marks us out for his personal possession and use. We belong to him and nobody else, not even 
ourselves. We become devoted to God. God acts, the Spirit acts so that we are devoted to God. In the middle of suffering and confusion, the churches needed to hear that they were set apart by God for God. They are dead to sin. He has set his reserve sign on them. And their being set apart is the, rece- re- is the reason they don't fit in. And friends, how infinitely better when you're struggling, when it feels awkward because you don't fit in, how infinitely better is it to be set apart by the living God than to be of the world? Being of the world is the way of the world. It's whatever, it's a cool thing to do. But we are set apart by God. We have the unspeakable privilege of being in the world, but not of the world. We have the honor of representing God to the world. Nothing is more boring than fitting into the world and nothing is more exhilarating than being sanctified by God. And for all those who turn to God, he will sanctify them. The spirit has placed his reserve sign on us so that he might use us, change us, and have a relationship with us. This is the precise reason we are not understood by the world. We are different. But Peter goes on and he helps us. Lest lest we think that we have anything to do with all the glories of the gospel that he's described, Peter informs us who accomplished our salvation, which brings about our obedience. Look at the third phrase. For obedience to Jesus and sprinkling with his blood. For obedience to Jesus and sprinkling with his blood. The theologian, brilliant theologian, Dr. Schreiner writes, the foreknowing work of God and the sanctifying uh, action of the spirit result in human obedience and the sprinkling of Christ's blood. First, we'll deal with the second half, sprinkling with his blood. This language is meant to evoke, again, Old Testament imagery. This could be the sprinkling of blood on the priest in a ceremony leading up to a sacrifice, or from Exodus when Israel is inaugurated into the Old Testament covenant by the sprinkling of animal blood. But what is significant, what he's getting at, is being covered, being purified in right relationship with God by way of a sacrifice. But Peter doesn't have in mind animal blood, right? This is his blood. This is the blood of Jesus that covers and purifies all those that repent and believe. It saves us from the wrath of God and delivers us to God in holiness, covered in the righteousness of Christ. Look at 1 Peter, it'll be up on the screen. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You want to know the price of all that's been described getting done? It's the blood of Jesus. He 
ransoms us by his blood. The innocent one sacrificed for the guilty. We are rescued from the wrath of God for our sin and rescued from slavery to sin. And friends, we are not only saved from something, we are saved to something. We are saved from our sin and for obedience, the first half. They are inseparable. We are saved for obedience. So we are elected, foreknown by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, sprinkled with the blood of Christ so that we might obey Jesus even as we tread in a foreign land. Ephesians 2.10 puts us this way. For we are his, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, united to Christ, in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Obedience is inseparable from our salvation. We are saved for obedience. Not by obedience, as Robbie noted, right? Where you're trying to make your own way to God, but for obedience. We will live out our identity if we are saved. Not perfectly, but nonetheless, we will live it out. And so we can trust God to give the grace that is necessary to live in obedience as an exile, which leads us to point number three, the overflow of our identity in the Trinity. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So after Peter introduces himself and theologically addresses his reader, exclaims the glory of salvation in the gospel, he gives us a benediction. And at first glance, you're like, if you're like me, you look at this phrase and you're not exactly sure what to do with it. It's not a command or mere objective statement. It's kind of more like a prayer, but also unlike what we kind of think of as normally a prayer. So, so what is Peter doing? What is going on? We call this a benediction. You'll see them often in the epistles and at the beginning, often at the beginning or the end of a letter. And at times, uh, especially in Paul's writing, he'll just, expl- he'll just explode with a benediction about who God is. Burst into it. Modern Jewish culture has something similar. Uh, you're probably familiar when they say shalom to each other, which means peace. It's, it's, a, it's a benediction. But this isn't a mere greeting or haphazard, wishful hope. When Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, this is more like an expectant prayer. See, after Peter goes over the glories of the gospel, Christians are elect, foreknown, sanctified, sprinkled by the blood of Christ for obedience. He is brimming over with an expectant prayer for his readers. Sam Storms helpfully writes, Peter's prayer applied to them is more than a formal literary convention. The grace of God is not merely his kindly and undeserved favor, but also his power and his presence through the Spirit, operative and active in the lives of his people. 
The peace for which Peter prays is likewise an experiential sense of well-being and spiritual tranquility that ought to characterize all of God's children, Philippians 4, 7. So friends, you know what weak, persecuted, imperfect Christians need? Grace and peace. Grace, the power of God, provides for all that he commands. It is an unmerited favor that spills out into the story of the Christian. It is the wealth of God's riches for us. It is God making himself known in our life by his presence. Peace, God with his people, ministering his presence, settled in the wholeness that he provides. Settles our souls even in a world that is flustered and running around. And this is what Peter both prays for and expects. He knows the readers won't fit into the world and shouldn't try. He knows that they need grace and peace. And I wonder, just wonder, that when we hear this expectant prayer of Peter, the same expectancy is your experience. If If you're like me, at times, um, can be more aware of powerlessness and inner turmoil than grace and peace. We are so aware of the waves around us and in us than we are of God's abundant, overflowing grace and peace in his presence. So as we pray for grace and peace, let us be on the lookout for grace and peace. Let us keep our eyes open to the infinite grace that God provides daily and the deep peace that he provides in his presence. We can be expectant that we will see a multitude of them. Robbie, you can come up. So friend-